Welcome to episode 69 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, the more from the Galactic Mailbag Q&A edition. It sounded like, I'm not sure what's going on your end, Shane. It actually, from here, it sounded like you opened um, like an old-timey fridge, pulled a beer out, and uncapped it. <laughs> well, um, that did not happen. <laughs> but, so, But the audio did seem to drop there for a second. Yeah, that's what it sounded like from my end. So that's great. I'm glad you're enjoying yourself. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane and we are amateur astronomers. That means we love doing astronomy and we love sharing it with you. And this podcast is how we do that. So um, Shane, shout out to Phil on this one. Phil usually sends the voicemail and kind of directs it at you. He directed this one at me a little bit this week. And uh, so I, I appreciate that. That was kind of neat. Yeah, I think he was asking you about uh, like which list you refer to and um, you know how, how can he or others sign up to this list. And, and I think it was the sketching list. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think we'll probably talk about that and lots of other things today. Yeah, we, we're getting more and more, um, and I, I don't want to say questions necessarily, because sometimes there, it's a mix of sort of questions and comments. And I really like that because we're not really like these astrophysical experts. So in a lot of shows um, where you do have like the astrophysicists or like professional astronomers, and, and it's great. Like those are great shows. I love listening to them too. Uh, people write in and you get an answer. I certainly have, have enjoyed uh, all of those shows, but with us, I mean, we're really not um, astrophysics experts or anything like that at all whatsoever. We're sort of um, expert amateur astronomers, meaning we like to look at the nighttime sky. We know lots about that, but uh, at the same time, we're kind of just like, like you, our listeners who, who enjoy doing astronomy and sort of exploring space in the universe for ourselves. So uh, Phil is uh, one of our longtime listeners. I uh, sent him lots of voicemails in the past. I've enjoyed uh, listening to those. He's also given us permission to use those in the show. So uh, we'll use those from, from time to time, although sometimes it can take a while to kind of edit those in. And uh, really what you folks are getting is, these are basically conversations that Shane and I have been having for years. And uh, what we're doing now is we're just recording those and we're kind of uh, explaining out what we're doing a little bit, but we really don't put a lot of editing into this program. We just record them and the odd time we'll do a bit of an edit. And then um, it's best probably like if people can join us. So I know Phil, like you were, you're giving that, give us that permission. I appreciate that. Really look forward. I think you said you'd, you'd be able to join us at some point in the future. And uh, yeah, no worries. Um, I know you're busy. You have a really busy full-time job. You have a, a young family, I know. And uh, you know, that that's great. And look forward to uh, having you on when you, when you can join us. And, uh, and I think you, you'll see really, really what you folks are getting is what we're doing. There, there's not a lot of prep behind it. You'll get just a, a bit of notes. And then we show up and say, Hey, like, how's it going? How's your day? Yeah. Good. How's your sound? Yeah. Good. And then it's like, all right, we're recording. We're going to have a conversation now. And that's all we do. Isn't it Shane? Yeah. That's it in a nutshell. There's not a lot of, um, um, yeah, production. There's not a lot of production. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, low effort and just sit back and enjoy. In full disclosure, you and I meet for 30 minutes once every six months about the show, whether we need to or not. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's carved in stone. <laughs> and usually we end up having a beer and, and talking about something other than the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because the <laughs> show is, talk... yeah, the, the show we... is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. Uh, yeah. And like, for example, I, I work days, I have a full-time job working science research and uh, teach at night. I also 
as part of the research, um, I'm not uh, like a scientist. I uh, work in support of scientists in, uh, in psychology. And uh, as such, I work with our participants and there's some on-call work. So I do that a lot of that on-call work and stuff like that. So and I know Shane, you're a busy person as well. And, you know, we, we just record these from our home offices. Mine is just like an unused eight by nine child's bedroom that has a beautiful view 12 feet away of my neighbor's wall. Um, I don't know what your room is like there, Shane. I think, you, I think it was like a craft room or something that you're in. <laughs> yeah. And we, we have a bedroom in the basement that is a, you know, it's a, it's a work office. So, you know, when I'm doing my, my real job from home, I'm here, it has some astronomy stuff. It has a printer, you know, it's kind of the, the room for, for all purposes. Yeah. And I, I do other teaching for the university that is not astronomy related. I, I teach an astronomy course through uh, the non-credit uh, community outreach division, which I love. Um, but as part of my job, I also do teach courses. So I'm kind of set up in this room uh, to do that. And, and I do that as part of my job. So, and I know Shane, you've done lots of teaching and education as part of your job as well, but, but this part we do just for fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, it's conversations that you and I would normally have anyway. So we just press yeah. a record button now and maybe add a little more commentary so that people can understand yeah. what we're talking about. And hopefully we, we call it a podcast. We call it a podcast. That would have been a good, good title for it. We call it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we ever have to rebrand it, there we, there yeah, we go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, Let's see, Phil was, was wondering about uh, a competition for images uh, and sketching and, oh man, I would, I think I should be the last person to judge people's sketches or, or photographs, but I, I like the idea. I think the idea is to, to get people uh, engaged in that. I think we're, we're probably at about half the listenership we need to be at to, to do such a thing, but um, maybe in another five or six months, we'll do something. And so I, I also write... Um, uh, as, as a volunteer uh, astronomy writer, I contribute a column to the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada's journal, which is, which is read by about uh, six or 7,000 people uh, every other month. And uh, probably what I can do is just dedicate a, an article to that in this podcast. And, uh, and maybe we would not quite have a competition because yeah, I, I, I just don't like the competitive nature of such a thing. But uh, when it comes to, to astronomy, and just people who are doing it for fun. That's not really a competitive thing, um, but I like the idea. And I think that uh, maybe we would just have that. Maybe we, we would just have a selection and then we would tweet out the other other photos or something like that. I think that's a good idea though. Yeah, I'd like that. Yeah, well, what I like about it maybe, and you, know, you and I can have some more conversations on it, but maybe we have like an object of the month or something like that. Okay, and, yeah. And um, what what we encourage maybe is just people to report on on their observations you know just okay. tweet them out or email them to us and then you know you and i can also observe the object of the month and see sure. see what we think of it and and you know there's so many things you can do with that you know you can talk about different telescopes and how it looks you know through a cassegrain versus a refractor or how it looks through uh you know my little 50 millimeter borg compared to your 100 millimeter takahashi you know there's lots of things we could do with that and it might be fun and interesting yeah um yeah i like yeah that that's a great idea yeah for sure and people were also interested i, I think phil mentioned it, other people mentioned it as well the 3d printed binoculars uh, that you help to coordinate uh, 3D mm -hmm. printing on. 
I wonder if we still, I think we still have those plans around somewhere. Maybe we can, maybe, and then you mentioned maybe doing an episode on these, maybe talking about parallelogram mounts as well. I like that. Maybe, maybe we should plan in that direction sometime in, in December. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was thinking maybe we could do a, like a DIY episode um, and mm-hmm. get, you know, it, it's a podcast, so it's hard to, you know, sometimes it's hard to talk about like real visual things, but maybe we could bring uh, some awareness to the various DIY amateur astronomy projects that people can do, you know, in their garage or, mm-hmm. or whatever, um, because there's a lot of different things you can do. There's a lot of different things you and I have done to make our own stuff. So I, I think we could talk, uh, uh, you know, enough to fill up one of our episodes on that. Yeah. Cause we have the, the cases. I mean, usually we, we did a project every year for a number of years. We did one year, we did cases. One year we did the binoculars. One year you did, uh, like a chair, um, you know, and then, then this year we kind of, you know, put together our, our own, you know, sort of ideal portable, ultimate portable observing setups. I mean, we always have some sort of, you know, weird little project on the go. I guess, I guess, I guess doing this podcast is one of those other things that, that we've taken on as, as sort of a, an annual and ongoing project. So. Yep. Yeah. I like it. Good stuff. So recently I had a question from uh, one of my students during, this was during class, I think, or they emailed me. Um, and they were having trouble focusing uh, on Mars in particular. Um, so they, they uh, recently bought a pretty good little refractor. Um, and then um, they pointed it at Mars, but they saw no details. So maybe yeah. I'll just get, uh, get your feedback. Because you actually pointed your really tiny little telescope recently at Mars. You, you have 50 millimeter you're messing around with and. And like, how did, how did you get it such that you could actually start to see some detail on Mars? Okay. Well, let me start off with focus. Um, sometimes getting like your perfect focus on a planet is challenging, um, particularly if the seeing isn't very good. Um, but also um, if your mount is a little shaky, um, you know, you may, you might have a hard time getting a real crisp focus. So mm-hmm. what I like to do is not focus on the planet that I'm trying to observe, but I'll just find some stars. So just point your telescope at the sky mm-hmm. and then focus those stars so that they're just as, as much of a pinpoint as you can possibly get. Okay. Once you, once you've achieved that, you could like most focusers have like a little locking thumb screw. You could actually lock the focus so it doesn't move at all. Um, And really, once you have that focus with that particular eyepiece, you're good now to look at the planets um, Mm -hmm. and and your focus will be fine there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, that's one little thing I I like to do or, or, you know, if I'm looking at Jupiter, I'll focus on the Galilean moons because they're almost like points, like star points, really. Mm -hmm. And then if I have those sharp, I know that, you know, that's about as good as my focus will get. So that's step one. Um, step two is to try to keep the object. So in this case, Mars in the center of the eyepiece, because depending on the eyepiece you're using and the focal length of your telescope, um, the further it gets to the edge, the worse it might appear. Like you might have some aberrations that impact your view and reduce your ability to see some of the detail. Um, so every eyepiece, every optical system the object will appear its best in the middle. So try to keep it there if you're trying Mm -hmm. to see some fine detail. Um, And then the last thing to do is, you know, when you have your first look at it, don't get frustrated if you're not seeing um, the surface details um, and then move on to another object. Mm -hmm. Commit to looking at Mars or or whatever 
say for like 30 minutes, you know, and not that you're just staring at it, you know, give your, you know, have a good look, look away, give your eyes some time to rest, come back to it. But, but just stay looking at Mars for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. You may even want to change your eyepieces in and out uh, for some high magnification or some lower magnification. Um, Because if you're, if you're looking at it uh, with too much magnification, it sometimes becomes more difficult to actually see the surface detail um, depending on the seeing. Like if the seeing is bad, in the atmosphere, more magnification in your telescope just amplifies the effects of that bad seeing and uh, can, can really reduce your ability to see details. But why I say look at it for a long period of time is that seeing fluctuates every millisecond and it, it sometimes gets better and then it sometimes gets worse. But during mm-hmm. those moments, those brief moments where the seeing increases a little bit, all of a sudden, you know, Uh, especially on Mars, like those surface details will come into view and you'll see like different gradients of darkness. You'll see maybe some details along the edge of the mares. Um, You might even start to see some clouds, you know, in the upper atmosphere of Mars. There's a whole bunch of things that will all of a sudden come into view, but then also probably leave just as quickly, you Mm -hmm. know, because that seeing is always fluctuating, which is why you want to spend a lot of time at the eyepiece uh, trying to trying to see that detail. So I don't know if you have anything Mm -hmm. else to add, Chris, but that's kind of my process if I'm trying to tease out, um, you know, detail on Mars or, you know, Jupiter, um, because those are the two that offer an awful lot of things to see, but can be very challenging to also see those details. Yeah, no, I I actually don't. Um, My process might be a little bit different, but, you know, I was thinking about what I do in, in respect to what you just described here. And uh, we're both, we're accomplishing the same thing. And, and, you know, I think that uh, if people follow your advice here, they're going to, they're going to have some success on, on seeing stuff on, on Mars. Like you said, just um, committing to spending some time on there and trying different eyepieces. I think this is, this is great advice. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what people, uh, people need to do. So sort of keeping on the, on the planet theme, I, I've also had a lot of questions and so this one sort of surprises me. And I, I think, I think I know why Jupiter can sort of be a strangely uh, difficult object to observe. You kind of referenced it there for, for a second, but um, what about observing Jupiter and, and the detail on the clouds? Of course, we're not seeing the surface of, of Jupiter. We're just seeing these cloud bands, maybe the great red spot. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on advice for observing Jupiter in general, Shane? Well, you know, I'd almost, I think I'd almost like state this for, for any of the planets that I like to look at. Um, uh, but I, I like to start off with a, a low power, like maybe around 30 or 40 times. Mm-hmm. And this is just for the aesthetics. What, what I really love, especially Saturn, but um, I'll do this for Jupiter and I'll do this for Mars as well. Start off with a low power because I like to see the planet against the star field. So yeah. I want as wide a field of view as I can, but still have enough magnification where I can see some of the, you know, maybe banding on Jupiter. Um, so I like to start off low. And then I, I just increment my way up um, and I like to go as far as the atmosphere will allow me. Mm-hmm. So basically uh, how I determine that is, is continually stepping up the magnification to the point where all of a sudden the next increase, I, I say to myself, oh, all of a sudden I'm not seeing as much or I'm not seeing it as crisply as the previous eyepiece. So to me, then I've hit the limits of the atmosphere and uh, then, you know, I'll, I'll back off to the previous eyepiece and, and use that one. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so what I find is, is most of the time you'll end up in that hundred to maybe 150, but 150 is probably a pretty good night. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see you noted here that you prefer 120 times. And yep. I think that that's right in that range, you know, yeah. of, of kind of where you'll end up. Now, yeah. if you get one of those incredible nights of good seeing, there really is no limit of magnification. And, uh, then, then you can, you know, have a lot of fun in, in cranking up that magnification and seeing, uh, the different views, you know, or, or how the views change with that magnification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So that's kind of my approach. Now I've talked about this other approach too, that, um, uh, in, in observing acquaintance has told me about, and, and he would spend three to four hours observing Mars and he would do the exact opposite of what I just said. He would start <laughs> off with like a three millimeter eyepiece, like something yeah. that provided a, like a super high magnification. And he said he would do this even if the seeing was bad and he would stay at the eyepiece and continue to observe. And then, you know, that he would start early in the evening when seeing usually isn't quite as good. And then, you know, seeing usually improves throughout the evening as, um, as the ground temperatures cool. Um, he said, then he would back off that magnification and find out what the atmosphere would allow. But he said, because he started off with such strong magnification, it really engages like the eye and the eye muscles to try to find, you know, as much detail as possible. Mm -hmm. So then when you dial down the magnification and you kind of get it in the right zone, it's like your eye is hyper stimulated to see detail. And he, he felt he was able to see more using that approach. So interesting. I've tried that a couple of times and, um, I, I, I think there's merit to it. Like it did work for me uh, a little bit. Um, however, I'd like, I, I haven't done it enough to really provide my own opinion on that. Yeah. I think, I think that's a fairly advanced, uh, approach and it's interesting. I was, and I, I sent you a link to to at least one or maybe uh, some more of his videos, uh, Ed Ting, E-D and then last name T-I-N-G. He's, uh, he's a guy that lives, I think he's in New Hampshire somewhere like that. Anyway, um, really amazing amateur astronomer and really one of the main gear review type people online. And, uh, and he actually talks about an individual who was getting into astronomy that was trying to use that approach and becoming very frustrated. So, so I do kind of, kind of give that as, as a little bit of a warning. If you're, if you're, uh, if you're an advanced observer, it might be something to try. If you're just getting into it, um, that may be uh, a, a more, more of a challenge than a, than something that's going to help you see things. Yeah. Fair, fair comment for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's pretty much uh, my, my sentiments exactly just kind of building on what you said. Um, Yeah. Like you said, I, I prefer those 100 to 150 power ranges and uh, people should know that on, on average or good nights, like I find uh, Saturn and, and Mars will take, you know, 180 power, pretty handily on any night that's that's really good for observing at all um but on jupiter you're really limiting at around 150 or so 140 power um and even 120 power on on a lot of nights it, it just doesn't take the power um as well i think because it's just so big and the details are fairly large they kind of get merged together and uh and yeah like you said play around with the power a little bit but you're probably going to probably going to fall in that 100 to 150 power range depending on telescope atmosphere etc yeah and and great comment about jupiter being maybe a little different and i think a lot of that has to do with just how bright jupiter is as well and like i i used to own a 12 inch mead light bridge and uh, i set it up 
one night in the backyard to look at Jupiter and I was really excited and I was so disappointed with the view um, because that light bridge just collects so much light that on Jupiter um, it would wash out the detail like it was it was really hard to see anything um, so I, I you know I think that that's one of the reasons too why you know maybe Jupiter's a little different than Saturn or Mars so in, um, in and I can't remember what this was um participant in my class or whether this was emails or, or maybe it was both, but we've certainly heard this a lot. Um, and I'm just going to sort of generalize the question uh, to you, Shane, uh, from a beginner's perspective, should I buy an equatorially mounted telescope as a first telescope? So maybe what is an equatorial mount chain and would you recommend it to a uh, first time telescope buyer? So equatorial mount, uh, sometimes we refer to them as EQ mounts. Um, so I think when you probably picture like a, a telescope in your mind, it likely has an EQ mount with it. And what that is, is it has, uh, two axes. Um, well, first of all, you, you align it to the North star. So the mount itself is angled up to the North star. Um, and then it compensates for the earth's rotation on the RA axis, um, and the essential purpose of an equatorial mount um, is for that. It's for tracking objects, and you can often get motors to drive them. And if you're into astrophotography, this is usually the setup that you'll go with. Mm-hmm. Um, now, another kind of neat thing with these EQ mounts is, um, uh, and this practice really doesn't exist anymore, you know, and it's unfortunate, but they come with setting circles. And on each of the axis, uh, it's a dial with a bunch of numbers on it. And if, um, if you're familiar with how to use them, you can calibrate your, your setting circles and then use those to find objects because every star catalog or every object catalog um, will have the RA and the declination coordinates of objects. And then mm-hmm. using those setting circles, you just you know, point the telescope at the corresponding numbers to the object you're trying to find, and it should be in the field of view. Um, so that's kind of a lost art. Not many people do that anymore. Um, I have done it a little bit with one of my EQ mounts and it, it works really well. Now, you know, a little caveat there, and I'm really going kind of, you know, down a rabbit hole here is that not all setting circles are equal. And a lot of the setting circles that come on uh, modern day EQ mounts, especially some of the, the less expensive mounts, they're just not that good actually. And, and while the principle remains in, in terms of how you use them to find objects, they're really not that effective because the scale on the setting circles sometimes isn't very accurate enough. Um, so anyway, I'll stop talking about that. The question though is, should, um, should you get an equatorial mount as a first telescope? And you know, I personally would recommend not to do that. They're, they're using an EQ mount adds a, a pretty big layer of complexity to your whole setup. And lots um, of little parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, to use it effectively, you have to align it to the North Star, which once you figure that out, it's not super challenging, but it's one more step. Yeah. But what I find most kind of frustrating, and this is even like, if I go out and observe tonight, this will happen to me. I'll be frustrated with the EQ mount for the movement. Um, You know, if you see Mars and you're not pointed at it, it's not just like left and up and you have Mars. You have to, you know, kind of follow the axis of the earth. And it's just weird movement is maybe Mm -hmm. the best way to describe it. Unnatural. It's unnatural, Shane. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's not, it's not at all intuitive. 
Yeah. Whereas an alt as mount, which is what you and I prefer, um, yeah. it is left, right, up, down, and yeah. it's very easy to point at whatever you want and yeah. look at it. Yeah. So I strongly recommend an alt as mount. They're simple. They're easy to use. You just plop it down and you start observing. And there's a lot of great ones out there these days. In in the previous episode, episode 68, I talked about the AZ5. Earlier this year, I bought a, an AZ-GT-E and then I bought an AZ-GTI for, for the manual aspect. I think those are great mounts. I own a Takahashi Lapidus Modified, which is an Altaz mount. Vixen Porta, Vixen Telescopes make a Porta mount, it's called. Um, there's a bigger one and a smaller one. I understand they're the same price and I understand that the bigger one is much better. So I'm not really sure what's going on there. I found that a little bit confusing, but um, if you're going to get the Vixen Porta, make sure you get the bigger one. Yeah, I had the the mini Porta many, many years ago. Yeah. And I wanted to use an 80 millimeter um, Apple, uh, Apple, uh, <laughs> Apocromat yeah. uh, refractor, and uh, it couldn't handle that 80 mil. It was way too much telescope for that mount. Um, it, I don't know if it's different specs now, but the mini Porta back then, I would say really was designed for like a 60 millimeter, maybe a 70, but I don't even know about that. Yeah. And they're both, I think like 199 American. So I'm not really sure like why you would get the mini one. Anyway, it's a little bit confusing to me. I went with a Skywatcher AZ5 recently when I was looking for something in that size range. It's a little bit less expensive, a little bit more flexible than the, than the Vixen. And uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely my recommendation. Um, mm-hmm. I, wish that, I wish that Skywatcher would, would push that mount more. I think they could sell a lot more telescopes um, and telescope packages. But, but they're getting, I think they're getting some pretty good, good equipment out there. I just still don't see the, you know, the very best starter telescope, which I think is the 80 millimeter F5. And, and I just don't see that on as many and as much of a variety of packages as, as I think it should be, because I think that telescope gives the wide field, low power, um, quick road to success. And that, you know, that real fun and enjoyment of, I want to look at the moon. Now I'm looking at the moon. Um, I want to look at the rings of Saturn. Now I'm looking at the rings of Saturn and with, uh, with the AZ5 and an 80 millimeter F5 on that, you're, you know, you, you're going to be able to do that very, very quickly. And I think that that very quick success, sort of <laughs> that instant gratification is not something to get used to with astronomy, but I think that that would hook uh, many people who otherwise just get frustrated with a lot of the gear that's out there. But anyway, I'm kind of beating a dead horse at this point. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do agree though with your recommendation. Uh, they're both, they're both outstanding. Uh, well, like the 80 millimeter telescope, uh, the F5 is, is a great one. And, and by the sounds of it from your recent review of the AZ5, that sounds like a, a really good mount too. Yeah. And Orion Telescope Binocular have re-released the ST80. And actually, Shane, I'm actually thinking, you know, it's $119 American and I'm going to send my Skywatcher version down to, to my nephew, like I was saying in the last episode. I'm actually thinking sometime the next year, I'm actually going to buy one of the new ST80s um, just because I, I like them so much and I wasn't as happy with the Mead. So I might, I might do what I originally was going to do with the, with the Skywatcher, which, which really was really, really good um, with the Mead. But the Mead is just supposed to be a kick around telescope to basically when we're doing public observing and we get rain showers, but, but it's not that bad. Um, to, to stop the public observing, that's probably what the meat is going to be relegated to. But I actually like the, uh, 
the 80 millimeter F5, not just as, as an entry level beginner telescope, but I also think that's a telescope that, uh, that most people should own if they're going to be into astronomy. It really um, bridges that gap between the binocular and the telescope in a, in a way that nothing else does. So it, it's a unique instrument and, and uh, I really want to get one that I totally trip out. So I think that's, that's probably in the future for me. All right. <laughs> So this one, I'm going to kind of answer because this is sort of yep. my fault. Um, <laughs> and, and we've had this, this is probably one of our most asked questions, and that is, are our old podcasts available? So um, for those kind of listening to this that haven't listened to a whole pile of podcasts that, that we've made before, that, that's fine. Start here, work your way forward. Um, our old podcasts are not available from the, I think the 2011, 2012 uh, time frame because the way that podcasting was done back then, you you kind of hosted it and then tied it all in. It was a little bit complicated. I had it on through iTunes, but I didn't pay for hosting, so I just hosted on some free web hosting that uh, that we had had access to at that time. And and so I just think that it's gone now. And and I'm fine with that. It's it's fine. I actually do have the uh, the show notes from those shows still. Oh really? Wow. <laughs> And, uh, yeah. And I kind of went over them. And so those older shows from, from, you know, eight or nine years ago, um, those were kind of ones that I initiated and Shane joined me on most of those. There were a few challenges. One, the technology wasn't as good and we weren't set up the way that we're set up now. Um, we do this over zoom. I think zoom is, a, is an amazing, uh, platform to, to do these on and it works perfectly. Um, so we were just using kind of like point to point recording. We we're just sort of recording, um, on my computer, it, the recordings weren't that great. I was having to do a lot of editing. I don't like editing. Um, uh, you know, if we have to edit something, we'll do it, but we don't edit the show very much at all. Um, and what else? Oh, well, the shows were really scripted. And although we have show notes for these shows, they really are notes. And this, what you're listening to this is just a narrative of what Shane and I are doing kind of day to day in our astronomy. Um, and then sometimes we'll kind of back off. We'll talk about what's coming up in the sky to look at that, uh, you know, for the upcoming month, but we're often planning to look at much or most of those things, if not all of them as well. And then uh, we might talk about a constellation that we're focusing on, but usually it's a constellation that Shane or me are looking at. I, I think we did uh, one month we did whatever constellation Neptune was in and I was hunting up Neptune or Uranus or whatever. So, um, yeah, we might focus on something like that or, or like where a prominent deep sky object that we've been observing is. So you're getting more of a narrative. I think it makes for, for a better story than a story that we're just trying to make up because trying to make up a story is a lot of work and we don't need to do it because we're already doing so much astronomy. We're, we're getting gear, we're reviewing gear almost constantly. Um, you're selling gear. My gear is just building up like the snowbanks are now. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, I think this is just a way better way. So, so the first podcast, um, we called Regina astronomy or something like that. And that was the other thing I didn't understand that. I thought like every, you know, sort of group of amateurs in every city would eventually have a podcast and they would just talk about their own observing and the, the audience would be very local. And that's not what happened with podcasting. They're more global. Like we have listeners from all over the world. In fact, we only have a very small handful of listeners who are local. 
um, and probably uh, even less than that number in, in our country sort of combined uh, outside of the local area. And then we have lots in the UK, for example, and in the States. And that's, that's great. I've, you know, been a visitor. We've been visitors to both those countries quite a bit. So, um, you know, that works well. And it's more of a global uh, community. And I think we're addressing that a little bit better with, with this podcast. Let's see. Um, yeah, so those early ones were, they were very difficult. Uh, we didn't care for the format as much. It was a lot of work. Um, and uh, these ones are much more fun. Um, and to me, yeah, it's both the story and the running narrative, um, you know, rather than trying to, to sort of make another thing that we're doing. Uh, this really is just, just what we're doing. So if, you know, if Shane was, I think once, um, you know, and you've done this a few times now is, is uh, a presentation on easy astrophotography in my astronomy class, you've been really kind to come in as a guest speaker. And, and you know, if you look back uh, in our shows, you'll find that there's, an easy astrophotography episode that, that Shane uh, ran. And, uh, and so you kind of get that running, running narrative of, uh, of what we're doing in our, in our own astronomy, what I'm, what I'm doing in my class and, uh, and what I'm doing, um, you know, as far as getting equipment in the door and, and different things that, that I'm working on. Um, and I think that's more, I think that's more interesting. People seem to like it a lot better. So do you have anything to add to that, Shane? Um, yeah, just some things are probably left um you know in the past and that i i think our original podcast is uh one of those uh maybe you could find it on the Wayback machine i don't know but uh yeah i don't know we certainly don't have any copies of it so nope. sorry folks that one's lost probably forever <laughs> and it's fine it's fine like yeah. it's not meant to be and i guess the other thing i was going to say about this I, I was looking at last night actually this caused me a considerable like more than i thought it would a considerable level of anxiety i was actually really surprised how anxious i became when i saw this but um, we've had 500 different people download and listen to our very first episode of this podcast. Oh, wow. And that really freaked me out. And I'm not kidding at all whatsoever, because um, that was literally just like a sound test. Is your, is your sound working? You know, and I, like, it wasn't that good. Yeah. I was still getting um, my setup here set up for teaching online. And I hadn't even taught online yet. Um, at that point. And, uh, you know, the way that we do this is it's a running narrative. We kind of just hop in, we do this every week. And, and as we notice things aren't working, we just kind of fix those. And then we just sort of try to fix one thing every week or two, and then we move on and we, we kind of move on to the next thing. Um, so I was really surprised and kind of felt a little bit bad that, you know, considering that, uh, probably our average download for the past, uh, six or eight weeks has been about 200, uh, listens per episode. So I'm thinking, is that like 300 people that came in and listened to those and were like, mm, not for me. And I'm like, it's mm, not really the way this podcast works. Like it's not like a, although it's like a running narrative, like you're, you're going to be okay if you start listening to this one and never listen to any of the podcasts that came before it. So it's not quite set up that way. Um, anyhow, that's my feeling on the old podcast. If anyone. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Chris, I'm going to read off uh, an email from one yeah. of our listeners. Yeah, sounds good. Um, I've already replied to this one. So this is going to be a test to see how we sync up on our responses or if right. we sync up. <laughs> yeah, this is not right. prepared. Yeah. So here we go. Uh, hi, Shane and Chris. Uh, I'm midway through listening through your recent listeners questions podcast. And I thought you might be able to make use of the following question in a future podcast. Here we I are. Live in a Welcome yeah, here to we the are. future. <laughs> 
that will be heard. Yeah, anyway, oh, <laughs> I was going down another rat hole that I'm avoiding. Um, <laughs> back to the email. I live in a moderately light polluted area. To give you some idea of the scale of light pollution, I've managed to see the Crab Nebula once, which surprised me a great deal, but I have never managed to even glimpse the Triangulum Galaxy. I've tried a few times. I've pointed my 70 millimeter F10 scope directly at it a few nights ago when it was near Zenith on a clear moonless night and I couldn't see a thing. So, continuing on, if I were to get a telescope with a larger aperture, this would obviously collect more light. However, presumably, it would also collect more of the light pollution. So, would a scope with a larger aperture be any use in a light polluted area or would the extra unwanted light captured by the scope cancel out the extra light of the dim object that I actually want to see? Turn it over to you, Chris. My answer is yes. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> next question. <laughs> so, so uh, awkward silence. Um, it will help, but there's there's sort of some pretty big caveats around this, and that's uh, sort of first of all, I think a 70 millimeter f10 uh, is a great instrument to start with. I, I you know I see lots of these for sale. I haven't looked through one, but I imagine that this is a pretty good uh, get and go in telescope. Uh, should have low uh, secondary color, uh, very well corrected figure, and so you should be able to see planets pretty good. I do a lot of my own observing with a 60 millimeter f10. So, uh, so there you go. I, I know that lots can be seen in a telescope that's a little bit bigger than that. Um, can you see more with a larger instrument under, under you know, more under light polluted skies than that? Yeah, you, you can, um, sort of with the caveat that, you know, nothing replaces getting to, to a darker sky. And uh, in order to see something like the Triangulum Galaxy, which this is like probably one of the first galaxies that many of my students try to see. And, and so I've, I've had this question an awful lot. Um, and so what you run into with this is it, it's a contrast between the brightness of the sky and the, and, and the brightness of the object, in this case, the dimness of the objects. This Triangulum Galaxy is, is in the constellation Triangulum. This is an autumn evening constellation. Um, it's near the constellation of, uh, of Andromeda, just, just sort of below it. And, uh, and the Triangulum, Triangulum Galaxy, it looks really big and it is, but it's also very faint. And uh, it, I think it has an, has an integrated like 5.7 or six or something like that. But, and that seems like it's gonna be bright, but it's so large, I think it's like the size of the full moon or just about half a degree, third of a degree or something. Mm -hmm. So, so it is quite large. And, uh, and because of that, that, that magnitude is spread all around. Think about a, a star that's, that's sixth magnitude. Well, that's, that's not even visible under a light polluted sky, you need to be at a dark sky to see a magnitude six star. Um, so then to see this, although you could see a magnitude six star through a 70 millimeter telescope from a light polluted sky, this is gonna have that spread over the size of whatever it is, like half a degree or something. So the, the brightness itself, the integrated brightness is gonna be very low. So you need to have a, dark, a darker sky than that object in behind it in order to pull that out. Um, so that could be, I've never seen the triangulum from my moderately light polluted yard. Um, can you see it in a larger telescope? I don't know. That's going to be tough. You, you will definitely see more through the larger telescope under uh, a light polluted sky than the smaller telescope through a light polluted sky. But if you take the 70 millimeter telescope to a darker sky, you will see more through that than you would through the larger telescope 
from the brighter sky. So um, that would almost be my recommendation. If you, if you do live somewhere moderately light polluted, I'm thinking there's, there's places nearby that are much less light polluted. So for me, what I do is I observe planets and the moon and, and limited deep sky objects from, from my home. And then when I want to view things like the Triangulum Galaxy, I drive 15 minutes and I can, I can see those sort of things. Um, and that's, that's kind of how I do it. But if you are kind of stuck, like, I don't know your situation, maybe you're somebody who uh, doesn't own a vehicle, or maybe, um, you know, you, you live in absolutely the best spot you can live for like a thousand miles in all direction or something. And it's, and you're, you're in the best spot, but it's still moderately light polluted um, for whatever reason. Um, maybe you do need a larger telescope or want one and, you, and, you know, probably looking at at least a five inch refractor, 120 millimeter refractor, maybe a six or eight inch Smith Cassegrain or, uh, or an eight inch or 10 inch uh, Dobsonian, um, they would probably get you uh, much, much more deep sky objects. My recommendation would be to focus on things like star clusters and globular star clusters, um, double stars, and, uh, and only the, you know, I mean, try for everything. You'll definitely see more, um, but some things are going to be going to be more challenging, but uh, yeah, for sure. I think like the triangulum is, is going to require getting, getting to a darker site, no matter what instrument you have there. Yeah. Well, you know what, Chris, uh, I think we're pretty synced up on that response. Um, I, I said very similar things in my email reply. Um, and I think your comment about a 70 millimeter refractor under a dark sky will probably outperform at any, like say an eight inch daub under a light polluted sky. You know, and the key there is you just, you can't substitute a dark sky for anything. Um, no. And, you know, I've used larger apertures, like I've used an eight inch and a 12 inch Dobsonian in the city, you know, under light polluted skies. And they do, they do pull in more of the unwanted light for sure. And they do allow you to probably see a little bit more of the deep sky objects, but you're not going to have great views of them. Like, um, you know, you're, you're probably not going to see a lot of structure in nebulas or, or even in galaxies. They're really just going to be fuzzy balls because, mm -hmm. you know, of all the light pollution. Um, so it's unfortunate, but that's the nature of it. And, and I think the key really is to adapt your observing to your environment. So you mm -hmm. brought up some great objects to look at from light polluted skies, you know, clusters, particularly open clusters. Uh, double stars, moon, planets, that's all awesome stuff to look at under light polluted skies because light pollution really doesn't impact that very much, if at all. Mm -hmm. um, and then save the other stuff for a dark sky uh, experience, uh, you know, the galaxies, the, the nebulas, uh, that type of stuff looks better there. But, you know, Chris, it, it sort of brings up an interesting topic. Uh, the triangulum observation to me mm -hmm. brings up an interesting topic. I don't know if we can form a whole show around it. I know you've talked a little bit about doing a show on magnitude, but you know, if you look at a star chart or a guide, M33, the triangulum galaxy is listed around magnitude 5.7, which, you know, should be a very easy target uh, in any telescope uh, and, and even in binoculars. Um, but like you talk about the integrated magnitude of, you know, a, a six magnitude star, all of that light is coming from that, you know, pinpoint of light. Whereas mm -hmm. in this galaxy that, that all of that light is coming over the entire size of this thing, which M33 is gigantic, um, uh, you know, apparently like from our perspective. Um, so all of that mag six light is spread across this half a degree object, which means it's actually quite dim. So 
you know, when you're reading a star chart, um, and this was something that took me a while to learn, uh, was that, you know, I, at first I just looked for the brighter magnitude objects and then tried to observe them. But in some cases it's a little misleading and the triangulum is maybe one of the better examples of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you, like you and I, uh, and Mike, we were in Grasslands National Park a few years ago, which is one of the darkest skies out there. And like, we were seeing a, a magnitude eight cluster, uh, naked eye there. And like, mm -hmm. You know, you shouldn't be able to see a magnitude eight object just with your eyes. You should need optical aid, but mm -hmm. it's just interesting how like, because of how large this thing was and, and all of the light that it was casting, we were able to see it. And mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's, it's an interesting topic. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And, you know, we were going to do a episode on magnitude um, in the recent past. We, we kind of put the pause button on for a couple of reasons. One was, um, we we're going to, we we're going to do it and put it on 365 days of astronomy. So, um, you know, a quarter of our episodes go on 365 days of astronomy, which is really great. And just, just as we were preparing that episode to go on there, um, one of the, uh, one of the other podcasters there went ahead and, and did one on a variety of, uh, astronomical topics, including magnitude. Um, and I thought they did a really good job. Like I think it was ask a spaceman. So I was thinking, Hmm, well, and I don't want to cover it in the same way. And, and he's more of a, uh, an astrophysical science communicator and, and even says as much and says, well, look, this doesn't mean as much to me because I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm more on the astrophysical side of things, um, not the observational side of things. So I thought, well, that's interesting, but you know, he still covered it really well. So what's the point in us kind of sort of doing the exact same thing? I think he, he did an awesome job. Um, so then like kind of with this, like in the context of the actual going out and looking at the stuff, which is, this is what we do. Um, yeah, maybe that's, that's what we should, should focus on. And certainly seeing M33, the Triangulum Galaxy is hundred percent. Like I get people who go and see the Andromeda Galaxy and, and you can see that quite easily from light polluted skies. And I've shown that to tons of people here in the city. And then, um, when my, my students, the, the participants in my class and are like my students, um, people who, who attended to, to learn a little bit more and are already doing astronomy, they've already seen the Andromeda and then they see the triangulum on the star chart just below it. And they go, well, this is big as well, almost as big and uh, has a name, not just a number. And uh, hey, it, it's not that faint. I know that a 5.7 magnitude object isn't, isn't that faint. It's something that you can see with, with a telescope from, from a city. And then they go to look and then they kind of make like, like, I couldn't see that. And I'm like, yeah, that one's going to be tough. So it's almost like I, I should be putting a warning out, but uh, yeah, there's lots of other objects like that. They become famous for one reason or another. The, the really prominent one that I always think of is the Horsehead Nebula, which is widely photographed. <laughs> Not to muddy the waters here, but um it is a very difficult thing to see. It's it's a dark nebula, so there's not a magnitude. There's a there's a opacity level to it, and it's and it's opaque, but it's not that opaque even. Um, so it's an extremely difficult object to see. But it's one of the most widely photographed. So so people will see the photographs, and then they go out to try to see it, and of course uh, end up end up somewhat disappointed. There's lots of other things to see in the area. Some of it's easy, some of it's not so easy. Um, but it's probably among the more more difficult things. So. Anyway, yeah, I, I think I think observing and the magnitude of observing would be uh, would be a good a good episode. So, but uh, that's kind of the end of the show notes, Shane. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I think it was a good discussion. 
love the questions. Absolutely love when we get questions um, that we can respond to in the moment, but then also discuss uh, during an episode like this, because, um, you know, you and I try to talk about things that are interesting to us that we think mm-hmm. others would be interested in, but it's always nice to have that feedback and, and those questions, because, uh, you know, if you're, if somebody out there is, is, has a question, likely many others do as well. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, it's good for us to discuss it. And then I think there's a lot of, a lot of value in everybody hearing that. And, you know, I think it was a couple episodes ago, Chris, where you talked about, you know, we sort of like a community, you know, that we try to build uh, yeah. and, and and not even we try to build. I think the amateur astronomy hobby is a bit of a community where, yeah. you know, people assist each other and, uh, yeah. you know, we all learn together. And I think that this is an extension of that when, when we receive questions and then can discuss them uh, on air. Yeah. And, you know, and everybody's different. Like people have to realize that as well. Um, you know, and it's not like a one size fits all thing. And sometimes we can kind of like, I, like I was saying previous to, to our recording, I don't think I put it in the recording is, um, had an individual and they had purchased an electronic telescope, um, as a first telescope before ever meeting me. Um, and they had, had come to, uh, come to something I was doing and, uh, and we're, we're kind of struggling with it a little bit. Um, they determined after some conversations um, that maybe they should try a different type of telescopes. They asked me what I thought about a Dobsonian, um, which we've talked an awful lot about and definitely is a, a recommended starter telescope. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. You know, I, I think that's, that's good. Like, a, like an eight inch. And they said, well, how about a 10 inch? I got a good deal on a 10 inch Dobsonian. And, uh, you know, and, and sort of being physically present with the individual, I'm like, well, this person is a pretty big person. Um, they're not going to have any trouble wrangling a 10 inch. Um, like some people may, you know, everybody's different. And, uh, my judgment on that was completely wrong. And, uh, they came back to me recently and said, yeah, that, you know, that, that telescope just didn't, didn't work for me. So, uh, so they're, they're looking at some other options there now too. So, um, you know, and I, I felt a little bit, uh, a little bit responsible for that, but, but, you know, everybody is different and it's, it's like the exact, um, you know, nature of what people are applying the instrument for, as well as, as the nature of the individual themselves and, and everybody is different, you know, and it, it just goes, goes to show that, uh, our advice is worth every penny that you're paying for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Mon- mon- full money back guarantee. Money back guarantee. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah, but I, I think that, uh, you know, kind of getting back to the 70 millimeter, I think that's, that's a great instrument. I wouldn't want to say uh, that that isn't, I think that's, that's a telescope that can certainly show you most things that, that you want to see. And it can show you the triangulum from a, from a dark site for sure. hundred um, percent. Just a matter of, of taking it to, to a dark enough site to see it larger instrument from the same site, still probably, probably not going to be able to see it, unfortunately, but larger instrument will show you a little bit more. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's kind of the, kind of the nature of it, unfortunately. Yeah. Good well, stuff. Good discussion, Chris. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Shane. Thank you, Chris. Thank you everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to ask us questions or leave feedback, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy, or you can email us. We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. And if you would like to support the podcast with a donation, uh, we are selling merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash actual astronomy. We wish you all clear and dark skies. <laughs>